We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. When I approached internationally renowned couples therapist and clinical psychologist, Dr. Susan Heitler, to be a witness on The Meaningful Life, I thought we would discuss communication skills and how to fight fair in a way that's respectful to your partner and doesn't trash your marriage. After all, she is best known for writing about conflict resolution and is the author of a series of books, The Power of Two, which can teach communication skills. But she came back with an idea that really intrigued me. Forget fair fighting, learn how to do win-win problem solving. I was intrigued. I get that compromise, which is what most couples go for, can sometimes be something that pleases nobody. But how do you get win-win? especially when each party wants something fundamentally different, for example, moving abroad or having a child or not. So before we get into unpicking a fair fighting and what a win-win solution looks like, Susan, let's talk about where you're coming from, and in particular, your own experience of conflict resolution. Wow, that's a big one to start with. I like it. Where am I coming from? Somehow, when both my husband and I were first married, I was in graduate school for psychology. He was for law. Both of us, from different sides, were thinking about a similar issue. He was thinking about conflict from the point of view of law. I was thinking about it from the point of view of therapy, and both of us were thinking about it from the perspective of how do we do this marriage thing? Here we are, newlyweds, and there's all these issues that keep coming up. The best we could do at that point was to take advantage of a strange thing about the house we had rented. It was on a hill. So if we sat down in the living room and the dialogue got heated, my husband would immediately go to the stairs up a flight There was a balcony there so he could still see me and we could still talk. At the same time, there was a door for running out if it got too heated. That was our first lessons in conflict resolution. And what lesson did you take away from that? That there was got to be some skills, some better ways to deal with this than his running away or my feeling just up a creek not knowing what to do. So how did you move forward from there? So I'd been thinking about this issue a whole lot, and I came up with what sounded to me like good ideas, that if you stopped fighting about, I want X, well, I want Y, you could maybe for a moment calm down and find out, well, how come you want Y? And I would say, how come I wanted X? The how comes are what I now call underlying concerns. As I was thinking and brooding about this, A book came out called Getting to Yes, Fisher and Uri. I was a little annoyed at the book because I had felt that it stole my thunder. How did they get there first? 
At the same time, I was very interested to read the book quite thoroughly and to look at how it was being used. So what is the problem of trying to be conflict-free? Because I grew up in a family where my parents never argued. I never heard them. They would snipe a little bit and go, but the conflict was all under the carpet. So why is that a problem? Well, there are decisions that couples have to make together. There are also inadvertently things that one person does that are problematic for the other. If couples can talk these over in a collaborative way, oh, they can come out with a win-win plan of action, something that works for both of them. Now, that may sound weird. Either you can do X or you can do Y, right? Wrong. Win-win doesn't mean one person got their way. Win-win means you paused, you talked calmly, sharing what the concerns are that led to your wanting X or Y. Once you understand those concerns, then you come up with a whole new plan of action, maybe some elements of X, maybe some of Y, maybe totally new. It's win-win to the extent that it satisfies both people's underlying concerns. So when I read the book, Getting to Yes, he gave different language to the same idea. His book was geared toward the business world. It never entered the psychological world. When I read the book, I thought, wait a minute, the terminology, you have to look at the interests that lie behind your positions. That couples like your parents or you or I in a marriage aren't going to look at the interests that lie behind their positions. We don't even want to say we have positions. The language was wrong. So I decided, oh, I'll write a book initially for professionals, and then later a second book for the Power of Two book you mentioned for the general public. Only I'm going to change the terminology. So it's terminology that people can use from everyday life. We all know what concerns are. It's amazing how often clients, when I'm sort of teaching them some of my skills, they say, oh, yes, I do that at work, but they somehow, <laughs> yeah. they somehow can't transfer it to the home. Why do you think that is? Many people grow up bilingual. That is, they have one way of talking and acting at home. Maybe at home, even as a teenager, they're the whiny child or the rebellious kid, and maybe in their house, the rules of dialogue are that everyone shouts at each other. When they go to school, they see, most kids are plenty savvy, they see that, hey, I got to use a different language here, the language of cooperation generally. Because I think one of the great shocks of the lockdown and lots of people hearing their partners on Zoom with their work colleagues, they thought, my gosh, this really wonderful person turns up to work. Why do I never meet them at home? It's a perfect question. And I love the observation. The mistake people then can make is, gee, why doesn't he do that at home? As opposed to, I'm wondering what I'm doing that may be triggering a different set of responses. I, I want to look at my part. And I want to talk with my partner in a quiet way. And I'll go ahead, what struck you? Well, I was just really loving that approach because, you know, most of my clients' automatic response is to talk about what you could do differently. Right. They point the finger. 
Yeah. There's actually a biological reason for that. Tell me. When things aren't going our way, when we're not getting what we want or we're getting something we don't want, what emotion comes up? Sadness, anger, resentment. Yes, all of the above, and particularly anger. Sadness comes up if we give up. If we're still hanging in there, we're likely to feel some form of anger, whether it's resentment or pissed or raging or something in between. Anger comes up to tell you there's a problem. At the same time, anger brings its own problem. When we're angry, our eyes are focused outward. We're not insightful. We're looking out there. It's very easy for our finger to be pointing where our eyes are looking. You, you, you. Now that is serviceable if you're an animal in the wild and you see something coming at you. You got to hyper focus on them and attack. Most of us are not really animals in the wild. We'd prefer to be civilized, very nice people with loving relationships. Anger then is useful to identify that there's a problem. Before we deal with the problem, we need to calm down and then be able to do insight. Gee, I'm feeling da-da-da-da. I would really like to. My concern is, how do you feel about that? We have to be curious about ourselves, and I think sometimes we're not curious about ourselves enough, and we have to be curious about our partner, I think is what you're saying. Absolutely. That needs to be the new culture, the new language that couples begin doing at home. And you're absolutely right. They're probably already doing that, at least with their boss at work and probably with their colleagues. And I think we'll do it with our friends as well, to be perfectly honest. Absolutely. Absolutely. But there's something about having so much skin in the game because, you know, you can always leave your boss and, okay, you can leave your partner. But, I mean, the stakes are much, much higher because it's a very strange office where you love your boss. (laughs) Yes. I like to think my secretaries loved their boss. Uh, (laughs) I certainly love them. That having been said, there's another big difference at home. Remember we talked about kids grow up bilingual? Well, the odds are very high for most couples unless they've learned an alternative skill set. Like unless you go out and learn a new language, you're at risk for speaking the language that was spoken in your home growing up, the language of conflict which might be silence, which might be avoiding, which might be yelling, which might be dominating. Hopefully, it's win-win, quiet discussion. Only most people don't have the luxury of having grown up in that kind of environment. I mean, it does happen from time to time. I have couples who come to me who actually, you really have to work hard to get them to bring the conflict up to the surface. But what I see the most is a family that one person either the the woman or the man, comes from a family where everybody said what they felt at the time and often completely horrible things. And five minutes later, they've forgotten, forgiven. And it's just so normal that nobody realizes just quite how toxic some of the language is and some of the throwing it out there. But they're vented, they've got it out, they're feeling fine. And for some reason, they end up with people who came from families that never argued and that actually (laughs) if somebody shouts and screams at them, it takes them three days to recover. And they're each fighting effectively for the other person to be more like them. 
Yes. So for sure, both the habits of not talking about conflict and of dealing with conflict in a fighting way, adversarially, both of those patterns are problematic. For sure, you're right also that the person who's the dominant one, the yeller, the angry one, is likely to feel fine after he, quote, got it out. It's like a toxin within him. What he doesn't or she doesn't realize is they're spewing that toxin into the other person. That person may look fine, 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 gunny sack, gunny sack, put it in your gunny sack over your shoulder until all of a sudden, at one point, the gunny sack, which is getting heavier and fuller and harder to carry around on your shoulder, pow! Excuse my yelling. I hope that didn't upset anybody. They release the gunny sack onto the other person. I've had it. So how do you help couples where they've got such diametrically opposed conflict cultures? I like a coaching approach combined with understanding of where their current patterns come from. It doesn't do any good to just feel guilty about handling conflict poorly. It's much better to just understand, oh, that's the language I learned growing up, and I don't have to be down on myself for using it, whether it's avoidance or outright fighting. What I do need to do is be open to learning a whole new set of skills. I like to think that a lot of people have that openness because a lot of people seem to buy my book, The Power of Two. They seem to be looking for a language of interaction that's cooperative and safe and makes what therapists like to call a secure attachment because it's safe and fun and loving. So give us some advice about how to create this positive culture where we can come up with a win-win solution. Shall we walk through a case? Would that be helpful? That would be the most wonderful way of doing it. Thank you for suggesting that. Okay. This is a case where I actually had permission from the couple. It's one of the most recent cases that I saw. So thank you very much. I'm obviously not going to say their names. So it was a very typical conflict that they had in that when you hear it, you might say, that's such a small thing. How could they get to the point where they're talking, we need a divorce from this minor thing? Shall I tell you the minor thing? Yes, please. He very much doesn't like food to be wasted. Yep, I know that one. She wants to be able to buy what seems right and cook what seems right without the pressure of, "Uh uh-oh, did I make too much? Did I make too much? What's your reaction so far? I'm thinking of a couple that I had where we spent something like five weeks debating how to recycle stuff in the freezer. So nothing stayed in the freezer too long and there'll be lots of sausages, but the other person didn't like sausages. So I'm well on for this when I've spent weeks discussing similar topics. And nearly always, it's standing in for something else. But let's... Well, let's just say there's more going on. You used an interesting word too, debate. So as soon as people get into an adversarial way of interacting, like debating, to prove who's right and who's wrong, or who has the best idea, they've lost. Shall I run through the three steps of a win-win process, which turned out to be very helpful for them? Are you ready? Here we go. Step one, 
which is actually the hardest step, is to recognize when a conflict is happening. The sooner you recognize, oh, we have different views, the less likely it is you'll get increasingly intense feelings about it. So as soon as there's X against Y, gee, I want to have as little leftovers as possible, or not leftovers, waste, food waste. And on the other hand, it's all I can do to cook and shop and cook again. And to be perfectly honest, after the third day of eating something, you're fed up with it and you want something else and you might want to throw it away. That's a possibility. Then the question is, where do they go from here? Adversarial means my way, no my way, my way, no my way. The alternative is to say, oh, that was step one. We have a conflict. We recognize there's a conflict here. It's very helpful to move from step one to step two with a summary statement. We have different ideas about food leftovers. That's a summary statement. Let's come to a common plan. So then the question is, what are the concerns? Let's start with him. What are the concerns that seem to be driving that strong feeling about no waste? He had to really think for a minute. His first response, well, that's just an important thing, like you don't steal and you don't kill and you don't waste food. Hmm. Where did you get that idea that those are kind of the same idea? He had to think for a minute. He said, that's what my parents said all the time. Don't waste food. Don't waste food. And actually, now that I think about it, I think I'm repeating their strong feelings about that. Where did their strong feelings come from? I'll bet you have some ideas. You want to guess? Okay. I would say that they lived somewhere where food was in a very short supply and that uh, they went hungry. That's exactly right. I forget the background, if it was a wartime, if it was a famine time, what countries they were from. But for sure, it was a time where food was a very scarce commodity. And that feeling that you don't know where the next meal is coming from. So it's, I mean, I'm beginning to feel the word, it's a sin to waste food under those circumstances. That's exactly how he was feeling. It was almost like killing someone because in a sense it could have that impact. Now, we could follow up later with what I call a depth dive follow-up. We Mm -hmm. could dive down into his past to find the roots of that strong feeling he had. The next question is, what's the same? Oh, the same is I get that same feeling now as I used to get as a kid of almost panic if I see food being thrown out. What's different is the next question about you, about your wife, about your situation. He said, well, number one, I'm not a little kid. I'm an adult. I can think about these things and make some decisions myself. Number two, and the biggest thing is there's not a war, there's not a famine. I mean, relative to the things we buy, food's not that expensive. And actually, whereas my parents were very poor, I make a decent living. And I've got a dog that loves leftovers. (laughs) (laughs) Send them to them quickly. So then when you're solving a conflict, it's very important to see both sides. Why did this 
really matter to the wife because it's got to be something as equally important because actually if I had a partner who was brought up by parents from famine times, I would just let him have his own way, so to speak. There's got to be something that's equally powerful for her. What was it? I'm her. Okay. Yes. So I'll say, well, a couple of thoughts are coming to mind. First of all, I'm responsible for the cooking and the shopping in this house. And I hate the feeling that I'm always having to conform to someone else's idea of how much is enough. The truth is, we have several little children who are, when I say little, they're elementary school now, and the boys are growing so fast. It's hard for me to predict how much food they're going to want, how much we'll want. I'd much rather have too much than too little. If I have too much, no problem. I use it eventually. I turn it into a soup, whatever, because I don't like to waste food either. And once in a while, there'll be extras, and I might even throw it out. The part that really gets me, though, is feel like I'm not under my own control. I'm under someone else. And why would that resonate for you so strongly? Ah, spoken like a good therapist. (laughs) Yes. So to ask that question, why would it resonate with you so strongly? I do it in a slightly different format. I say, close your eyes. When you think about having to conform to your husband, let's give him a name, Nathaniel. Oh, that's a nice name. Yeah, I like that name. Nathaniel's rules. Close your eyes and picture that feeling that comes up. And she said, oh, it's like resentment and anxiety and feeling bullied. Oh, where do you feel that? Where, Where do you feel that in your body? By doing that, it helps access the subconscious better. She said, it's like someone's pounding on my stomach. It's, I feel it in my stomach like a pounding almost a hammering. Next question. Allow an image to come up of some time earlier in your life when you had a similar feeling. Mm. She actually laughed. Oh, it's so clear to me, she said. That's exactly how I used to feel around my father. Actually, a lot of the time around my father. I think he meant well, but he would very easily get angry get very angry. He wasn't physically abusive. You had to do it his way or else you'd get the verbal bullying beat up. So I was afraid to even discuss with him. If he told me, you must be home by nine o'clock tonight, it would never in a thousand years have occurred to me to say, well, actually, the party's not over till 10. I would be home at nine. Hmm. Same next follow-up questions. What's the same? Oh, I can see I react the same to Nathaniel because when he tells me in a kind of a strong voice, I don't like waste, it may not be out of anger for him. It may be out of fear of his parents, only it sounds to me like the beginnings of what's going to turn into anger like my father had. So I immediately came in and I just do it. No questions asked, but I hate it. And then you get to the point that you've got so much in your gunny sack that we have a rebellion. Exactly. We're getting divorced. You got it. The good news is the third question, what's different? 
First, what's the feeling? Second, what's the same then and now? When you picture earlier time in your life when you had that feeling. And the third is, what's different now about you, about the situation? Well, I'm not a little girl, number one. Number two, Nathaniel, he's really a lovely guy. And he does get a stern facial expression. At the same time, he certainly doesn't yell at me. He gets impatient and he does yell too much at the kids. I need to talk with him more about that. Only he's certainly not beating up on me verbally or anyway. So maybe I could get up my courage and talk with him about how I feel like we're doing now. And so what was the win-win solution for this couple with leftovers and budgeting and control? He said, you know what? I understand now that that rule about no waste was appropriate for my parents. I'm letting go of that. I think I'm going to experiment with a new rule. There's not enough unless there's too much. How would you feel about that being my new assumption? Oh, that sounds wonderful. (laughs) That's just what she said. She said, in fact, I really don't like wasting food in any case. So I am, my natural me would be careful about it. If I don't have to worry about what you think, it's a whole different ballgame. That sounds wonderful. Have we covered everything that uh, we need to know about win-win solutions? They went on to talk about creative ways they could use leftovers. That was the beginning of the solution. The point is to make a solution set where there's a little piece of the solution that's responsive to every concern that came up. So I actually gave you a somewhat simplified version. There were other concerns about certain foods, about certain kids, etc. Let's leave that aside. The main point is that when people talk quietly in a mutually respectful way, oh, number one. Number two, as soon as they recognize that there's a conflict, They say, oh, let's look at the concerns underlying the preferences of each of us. And then they can move to find a solution that genuinely is responsive to both of their concerns, all of both of their concerns. I call that the win-win waltz because it's three steps. Recognize there's a conflict, explore the underlying concerns, come up with a win-win solution set. So like a waltz, there's three steps. That sounds really good, but it really requires that we can sort of keep our cool during all of this. When our partner is sort of talking about their stuff, we're not hearing that as criticism of us. Correct. And that is easier if the partner has good communication skills, that is, has the habit of talking about themselves. I have a basic rule. You can talk about yourself. That's insight. I feel my concern is I would like to. Those are great sentence starters. You can ask about the other. How do you feel? What are your thoughts? No one gets to talk about the other. You think, you feel, you just want. So the you statements are all out of bounds. The I statements, the personal reflection and sharing, that's half of it. The other thing that keeps the calm, it's a dialogue. That means in addition to talking, there has to be effective listening. A good dialogue is like a game of catch. One person throws, and if the other person didn't catch it, 
then that's provocative. So how do you catch what someone else says? You really think about it. You think about it with the good ear. Gee, what makes sense about that? As opposed to what's wrong with that idea? And I think another thing we have to say straight away is we can only talk about the leftovers. We can't actually talk about our daughter's piano lessons and what you did on holiday in Tel Aviv last year. We can only deal with one topic at a time. Right. So in the early 2000s, fair fighting came out as a concept. That was one of their principles. Well, just pick one issue and stick with that one issue. That's a good rule. The difficulty for me, if we go back to where you started with the notion of fair fighting, listen to the words. Sure, you can have a boxing match following certain rules. It's still a boxing match. It's still a fight. What I'm recommending is people let go of the idea of fighting, fair or unfair, and instead see each other as allies, as partners, which is why we marry each other. But there are elements of fair fighting that I particularly like, which actually fit in with what you're saying. So seek to understand rather than criticize. That's the listening skill. When you're on listening mode, if you think of a conversation as being like between a walkie-talkie, when one person is talking, your walkie-talkie has to be just on listen. Once you've really absorbed what they said and maybe even augmented it, you know, yeah, it makes sense your parents were so worried about food given their background, the, the poverty and the starvation. That would be an excellent listening response. In fact, you can tell a good listening response because it often will begin with yes, or I agree, or it makes sense to me. And those little things are so important because we're internally saying, I agree, yes, you're right, but often we don't actually say those. And if you're trying to get building agreement, tell your partner what you agree on. Yes, that's a good point. 100% you're right. Listening actually has two pieces to it. It has what's going on while they're talking, which is you need to be focused and, again, listening with the good ear. The listening is incomplete until you do something with the data. Oh, I agree. Do something in the sense of verbalizing what's the information you uptook. Now, it doesn't mean you have to repeat what they said. We're not parrots. You need to do something that picks up on the main or key idea of what they said and does something with it. I call it reflecting back. So you would say the main points again. So I would say, if I was reflecting back with you, we don't have to repeat it. We're not parrots, but you need to let the other person know that you've got the key points by perhaps summarizing them. That's one way. In a really complicated situation or discussion, that can be helpful to summarize it. Hopefully, there's just one point at a time. In a good game of catch, one person doesn't throw five balls, they throw one ball. The person, other person catches that. At the same time, often an effective response is to augment or add to what they said. Yes, I hadn't thought before about what your parents must have conveyed about food. Now I'm adding on to what he said. In fact, I feel so sad just thinking about them, how hard it must have been for them growing up. 
And you're adding another thing that comes from fair fighting that I like, being open about your feelings. You just said, you know, I can really empathize with that. How sad that your parents had to deal with that. Absolutely. It should be easy to say, I feel, and then one word, fill in the blank. Interestingly, many people, instead of verbalizing their feeling, will say, I feel that, or worse, I feel that you. It's basically a you statement. It's amazing the number of people that will put I feel before a thought. I feel that it's unfair. Well, that's a thought, isn't it? Whereas what's the feeling? It might be angry, it might be resentment, it might be sadness, it might be fury. I don't know, but I've just heard a thought. I can't tell you how many times I say to people, uh, uh, that's a thought, I've asked for a feeling. Exactly. Many people are not in the custom of verbalizing a feeling because they're not in the habit of insight. You have to look in, pay attention to what you're feeling in order to say, I feel X. If they didn't grow up with parents who either did that or asked them, gee, what are you feeling right now? Or worse, if they grew up with parents who, when they said a feeling, the parent walked away or got mad at them for it, there's a lot of reasons why people learn not to say their feelings. Or perhaps their parents were the ones that were allowed to have the feelings and they were supposed to be the carer and to regulate their parents. Yes, there's many forms of parenting that are unfortunate. That is definitely one, teaching bad habits to the children. And one other thing from Fair Fighting that I'm going to have to stick up for as well is <laughs> don't mention divorce or breakup in the fight because I can't tell you how destructive that is. I'm with you 100%. And again, you ended with the word fight. So where I depart from fair fighting, I've said this already, I hope you don't mind my repeating it, zero fighting, zero dealing with each other in anger. 100%, when you feel angry, you calm down, you ask yourself, wait, what do I want that I'm not getting? Or what am I getting that I don't want? Oh. Or what boundary has been crossed for me? Yes, a boundary is, means you're getting something that you don't want. Absolutely. And then, wait, what do I want here? And then what might be a better way to get what I want than to get into fighting about it or speak angrily at my partner? Oh, gee, I would like to go for a walk with her or him and have a quiet talk about what happened this morning or whatever the issue is. And it's amazing how often it's actually the same fight that's happening over and over again. You're 100% correct. It can be, in fact, a useful exercise. I have my couples do this right at the beginning of treatment to list what are all the issues over which they spark or what are all the issues also that they don't talk about, that are troubling to them that they don't talk about. Mm, and what's the balance between the two? Very different from couple to couple. Just like some geographic places are filled with sunshine, maybe too much heat, lots of sunshine, and some have lots of rain and storminess. Some households have a lot of anger and storminess, and others have sunshine, even if sometimes it's covering up underneath some real problems. 
So we're going to look at the idea of a win-win solution to a big problem, and we'll do that with a letter in just a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So there are many ways of getting involved in The Meaningful Life. I hope that you're going to become a supporter, get the bonus material and unlock all the added benefits. I hope you're going to subscribe to my newsletter. You can do both of those by going to www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcasts. And you can also find out how to participate by sending in a letter. And here is one that's been sent in to us. I thought my life was settled. I was at the centre of my family. My husband and I had done the heavy lifting of our careers and the shepherding of our children. They had both finished university and they were making their way in the world. We could relax and enjoy ourselves. However, I've discovered that not only was I on a different page, but my husband was reading from a completely different book. He not only wants to take up a new job in a new city, but he doesn't really want me to come too. It has sent friction through the whole family and I am bereft. Alone and, if I'm honest, frightened. I never really thought about my age, 62 before, but suddenly it's all bearing down on me. We're looking at the very least at separation and probably divorce. Everything is unravelling. How do I find my way back? How do I find some joy again? So this is, in its own way, a really big problem and... And and I'm just wondering, how are we going to approach this? Are we going to break it down into smaller things or are we just going to go straight into the big dilemma? Well, it sounds like he's proposed a plan that's very uncomfortable for her, maybe even begun implementing it. What's missing for me is what triggered that desire to go to a different city, to take a different job. That is, what are his underlying concerns? Second, what has her part been in that? To what extent have each of them been interacting in a way that strengthens love? To what extent have each of them been doing something counterproductive? Then the additional question that would come up for me, if he doesn't want her visiting, that rings my bells for affair. So finding out in some way is their affair becomes very important that they be able to talk in a quiet way. And it's rather difficult to be talking in a quiet way when, in this person's case, that your whole future seems at stake. I can feel my pulse racing and my heart beating faster. Absolutely. It is difficult and it is essential because yelling and berating and sobbing and begging. All are ineffective. They spread more negative feeling. She's going to need to sob. She can do it on her own. She's going to need to sit with him in a way that both of them can feel safe, really putting out on the table what's been going on all these years, what's going on now, what's a solution that will work for both of them. 
So are we going to start from now? Tell me about this job. Tell me about this country. What is special about it? Why now as well? Because if she's 62, I guess he's probably going to be in a similar kind of age. And what does this mean at this life stage where you're on the cusp between turning into an elder, I suppose, would be the the way of putting it? Or do we go right back to what's been happening over these years where it seems like they've been focused very much on the children? And what did that feel like for each of them? The second sounds much more productive. Right, going for what's been happening in the past. Yes, where did this come from? In other words, uh, life is a little like a train. Let's sit together quietly and go back from early in the relationship and look at the various stations that the train tracks went through that resulted in our ending up where we are. You know, we had children. I focused very much on the children. I think I kind of ignored you, each looking at their part. How did you feel during those years? So you're looking at the stages rather than, for example, trying to identify when you went on one train track and the other, because what often happens, how do you deal with that? You know, say he said, well, for me, 20 years ago, we went on the wrong direction. And she then says, well, actually, for me, that was wonderful. And you're sort of robbing me of all those wonderful memories, et cetera, et cetera. And in fact, for me, it only happened here and we get into a fight about that. Right. The word we is problematic. Nobody gets to talk for we. I was very unhappy then. Oh, and I didn't see it at all. I, I. So there's nothing to fight about. You're just sharing data. You're filling in the data. I love that idea. Nobody has the right to talk for we. I think that's a we should sort of nail that one to the mast. <laughs> good, good. So I, I have on the website for one of my other books, it's called Prescriptions Without Pills. So the website is prescriptionswithoutpills.com. If people look under the section about relationships, there's a no-fly list. Some years ago, when the U.S. anyways was worried about terrorism, they had a no-fly list for people that FBI was monitoring that would not be allowed on planes because they might blow it up. Well, the words on this list have potential to blow up the conversation. They can take a dialogue where people are trying to be collaborative, yet it's an explosive on the train track. We is one of those words, but is the most common and problematic. Yep, because the minute you say but, one of my famous books is called I Love You But I'm Not In Love With You. And what but does is it just negates the first half. So it's I'm not in love with you. Whereas the word and, I love you and I'm not in love with you, is still upsetting, but nowhere near as upsetting because it keeps both of those two halves of the sentence and gives them equal weight. Right. So no we, no but, and then you can actually talk more about the past, and then you slowly but surely come up to today. Right. And in talking about the past, each of you is looking for your own mistakes, mistakes and misperceptions, misunderstandings, all the misses. 
So you can say your own mistakes, but you can't point out your partner's mistakes. It's up to him or her to come up with those you solutions. Can talk about yourself, do your own discovery. And if you want to know about your partner, ask. Good questions begin with one of two words, just basically two words. Want to give it a try? Well, I have more than that. I have who, why, when, what, how. So what and how will cover most situations. I agree with you that when is sometimes important. Why is always a good question. Actually, I prefer how come. There's something about why that a lot of people react with, well, I have to justify what I did. Tone of voice, if it's really kindly or collaborative or respectful, may tone down the why. Oh, why did you feel that way? Maybe okay. Mm. There's something about how come you felt that way that seems to feel safer to people. Mm-hmm. I can also hear, how come you t- you feel like this right. as well? So tone, tone is hugely important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. hugely important. So I like to keep it simple for people and I say, unless you need to know a time, then when is appropriate or who. Most of the time, stick with how and what, as opposed to are you, did you, have you. Journalists talk about ended questions, how and what yeah. are open I talk about barristers' questions where they sort of lead the witness. Am I right in thinking, my lord, that you're a stinking, horrible person? <laughs> you got it. I call them curious questions because you genuinely don't know the answer. Whereas people are sort of trying to prove a point, so they ask questions to prove their point. Whereas I want a genuinely curious question that you're not assuming you know what the answer is. How and what. Yeah. Correct. Which brings up another point about win-win dialogue and win-win conflict resolution. One can't be going into it with an attitude of, proving that I'm right and you're wrong. No persuading, no proving. Like you're saying now, there has to be an atmosphere or an internal feeling of curiosity, interest, wanting to understand, openness to new information. And don't come with your own solution because the solution that the two of you will come to at the end is going to be much stronger than the one that I've thought of. And the problem is once I've thought of a solution, however good it is, I might get rather attached to it. And when you and I come together, we're going to make a collaboratively a much better answer, I believe. The coming with some ideas for solution is fine precisely like you said, if you haven't attached, so your ego is it's my way or no way or my way is right. It's important to have an initial idea of solution because then you can say, hmm, what are the concerns to which that solution sounds like an answer? So you use your initial idea or initial solution as a spade or a shovel to dig down, oh, what's underneath that? What's the concern that that's an answer to? And I think that it is important, going back to our letter, to look deep down as well. You know, why is your age suddenly bearing down on you? Is the work of previous stages like midlife that you haven't attended to? You know, are you still leaving somebody else's life rather than leading your own life? 
Right. So if those were all what and how questions, yeah. what is it about being in your 60s? What's the image that comes up? I would add one more point to that letter, though. I think it's gnawing at me. People don't like to talk about potential affairs. She may feel very hesitant to trust that little voice in her that says, how come he doesn't, how, how come he doesn't want me there? How come you don't want me there? What might I see that you'd prefer I not see? And that's very different from, are you having an affair? Right. It's preferable. And it might be a little bit sort of unclear. There might be interest in somebody. There might be that actually hasn't in in the mind of your partner. I mean, I, whether this mindset is right or not, it's not an affair because nothing has happened. But actually, in reality, an awful lot has happened. Yes, absolutely. So she could say, for instance, you know, when I hear you saying you don't want me there, that's a when you, when you say that or when I hear it, I get very scared. I get very scared that the reason you don't want me there is because you're having an affair. I get very scared about that because looking back, I can see that we really grew apart. There has not been a lot of loving exchanges between us for a long time. I would sure love to change that. I love you so much. Well, thank you very much, Susan, for that. We're beginning to run out of time, I'm afraid. There will be bonus material. I'll be talking about that in a moment. But I have to ask you, as a witness on The Meaningful Life, what makes your life meaningful? (laughs) Well, I had some other answers planned. What comes to mind to me right now is just enjoying and appreciating every day. Sometimes I do things that feel important to me. Sometimes I just sit and enjoy how delicious the fresh asparagus are this year. So that's a beautiful answer because actually meaning really can only be found in the moment. I think that that's right. It's nice to be able to look back and feel good about things you've done. It's very nice to be able to look ahead at things you still would like to do. And the how did you say it? You just said it so beautifully. Meaning is found in the moment. I love it. Appreciating what's going on in the moment, really experiencing it. Wow, I like that. So in a moment, we're going to be talking about what marriage counselling can do that individual work cannot. So if you want to hear the bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. And if you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and unlock the bonus material this way, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. 
At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Collick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.